Hi, I'm Miranda. And I'm Stephanie. We've been friends for more than 15 years. I live in Ottawa. And I live in Winnipeg. I'm raising two girls. And I'm raising two boys. We're both wives and working moms who do our best to make it all work and to enjoy our empowered lives. We think feminism is still a work in progress in our homes, our workplaces, and our politics. And we love to learn, especially from other women. So we started Women Don't Do That to talk about issues women care about today and to inspire us to do whatever it is we think we can't do. When I was a little girl, no one ever suggested to me that I could become a police officer. This might have been because I was born in the mid-80s when less than 4% of police officers in Canada were women. But my guest today was born before women were even eligible to apply for Canada's police service. And still, a career in law enforcement somehow became her childhood dream. In 1988, she made that dream come true when she was sworn in as a regular member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Her career since then has included immigration, passport, and war crimes investigations, major event security, including for the Vancouver Olympics and Paralympics, as well as serving as the Director of Parliamentary Protective Service on Parliament Hill. In early 2019, she was named Assistant Commissioner of the Manitoba RCMP and the province's first female commanding officer. Welcome, Jane McGlatchy. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Jane, I'm curious to know what sparked your desire to work in law enforcement. What made you believe that you could be a police officer, that that was accessible to you? It's a it's a interesting sort of little story. I grew up in Nova Scotia, and I was born, I don't mind talking about how old I am, I was born in the mid-60s where, you know, there was not a lot of women in policing at all, certainly not in the RCMP. But I was enthralled with the RCMP as a kid. I mean, they were policing my community. I grew up. Uh, I started you know, outside of Halifax and the police, when I'd see them driving around the community and they were always friendly with the kids and they were fun and I was pretty impressed with them. I thought they were pretty cool and I wanted to be one. But I'll be honest with you, from a very young age, I was told that there was no way that I couldn't be a police officer, not a Mountie anyway, because there was no women in the, you know, I was a girl and there were no women in the RCMP and I was pretty upset at that. But I have to credit my parents. Um, they were absolutely clear that I could do whatever I wanted. And when I got older, no worries, it'll be fixed by then. I could, I, I would able be able to do whatever I wanted. And even I do recall in school being told by a teacher in no uncertain terms during the, the, the typical, let's go around the classroom and ask everybody what they want to be when they grow up. And I said, I wanted to be a Mountie. And the teacher wouldn't let me leave it at that. She was adamant that I had to pick something else because I was a girl. <laughs> you and needed I went a backup home. plan. <laughs> oh, yeah. We were all upset, and my parents were even more upset. And they had a meeting at the school with the teacher I wasn't involved in, and all of a sudden I could do whatever I wanted. So <laughs> according to that teacher, so obviously they kind of ruled the set down uh, the, the, the rules about their kids that you will not limit them regardless. So anyway, I, I credit my parents. They, they let me believe that I could be whatever I wanted to be. And then, of course, in 1974, women were welcomed into the RCMP. I would have been not quite 10 years old at the time, and I didn't really know. It wasn't big news. But all of a sudden, I'll never forget, I was probably a little older than that, even 11, first time I saw a female RCMP officer. 
And I was over the moon when I saw her. She was just uh, a superhero in my eyes. And that's it. That cemented it. That's where I wanted to go. And now you get to serve as a role model for other young girls who are maybe looking at that as a career path. Um, It's still only about 20% of the service that's female. So it's still a minority, but significantly more, of course, than when you were growing up. Um, but I love that. I love that from such a young age, you knew what you wanted to do and you got to prove your teacher wrong <laughs> and your parents <laughs> right. Um, what was your experience as a woman in the RCMP early in your career? Um, you would have been, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the, in the mid eighties, it was less than 4% of the service or about 4% of the service that was female. Did, did you feel equal? Were you welcomed? Were you accepted? Um, that's a difficult question because in some cases I did feel welcome and in other cases, absolutely not. And I'll explain that. Um, the vast majority of men, and they're mostly men that I've worked with in my career, including at my first posting, my first posting, I was doing general duty policing in Prince George, British Columbia. And I went on to a watch and, and, uh, there's, you know, again, very few women in the organization I was the only female on my watch. At the time, and I went on to a watch of guys, uh, which is a shift, you know, of police officers. We'd go out policing together and we'd be on the, on shift together. And the vast majority of guys I worked with have been great. They were welcoming. They were professional. They were respectful. Um, the one difference that I found as a woman coming into that role is I was never given the benefit of the doubt that my male colleagues got when they arrived new from depot, shall I say, the newbie out of training, the rookie. There was always this level of belief that the, the new guys would be just fine and do a good job as police officers. When women came in, we were not given the same benefit of the doubt. Now, I was really fortunate in that the guys, even though – they didn't give me benefit of the doubt. They also didn't prejudge me and assume I was going to do a crappy job. Um, they just sort of stood back and took the more of the wait and see uh, attitude, most of them. And uh, it didn't take too long. I think it was after my first fight on shift, actually. And I was all in. And I was one of the gang after that. So it wasn't too bad. You um, have to tell us that story. Tell us about your first <laughs> fight. Actually, it was my very first shift, believe it or not. <laughs> Prince George was kind of a rocking place. It was a minor little scuffle. I was arresting somebody who didn't want me to put handcuffs on him, and we ended up having a little scrap on the ground. Uh, but I was, again, I went in and I said I wasn't afraid to mix it up. I'd been well-trained in self-defense tactics when I went through training, but I'll admit it was my very first fight in my whole life. I wasn't a fighter at school, really. Got a couple of little ones, I suppose, here and there, but. But yeah, so it was a little scrap to put the cuffs on, more of a wrestle than anything. But I was in, and once the my trainer and some of the other uh, members around me saw that, then I, I think they were a little more uh, willing to believe that I was going to do a good job. I think the difficulty for me, believe it or not, and I know as an organization, the RCMP has gotten some uh, a lot of press on you know, the treatment of women and that sort of thing. And and I'm not suggesting, and I don't want to minimize that. There has been problems over the years, especially for certain people. But um, the bigger problem I had was with the public. Mm -hmm. So if I got a call and I went and I arrived and I knocked on a door to try and help somebody solve a problem, whether it was a domestic dispute or a break and enter or whatever, you would be amazed at how many people were not happy to see me. And I don't know how many times I got in the 80s I want a real Mountie. What are you doing here? And that was very disheartening because these are the people I was there to help. 
So it's interesting because society in general, you know, I think there was a lot of difficulty for women to enter into some of these non-traditional roles. And it wasn't certainly just within the organization, it was society in general. Now, again, I, I don't want to be all negative Nelly on this thing. The vast majority of people were happy to see me, and I got a lot of great comments by how great it was to see women in the role. But there wasn't rare for me to have somebody look at me as I was coming up the doorway and be looking behind me for the real Mountie. And that was disheartening. Yeah. Especially when you're, you know, in some cases, putting yourself in harm's way possibly to help them and, and serve Absolutely. the area. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, you know, then I just took the attitude that you go in, you do your best job, you do it well, um, you help people regardless of whether they really want you there or not. And then you you show them that they, they got it wrong and you prove them wrong. And that's always worked for me. Is it better today? Do you, do you experience that society that, you know, generally on calls, it it's not exciting or concerning if a female police officer arrives. It's just, you know, another oh, yeah. police officer. I think it's, it's normal now. People expect to see women in the role, whether it's in a city police force or a rural one like the RCMP. Um, it's, it's not a surprise if a female uh, police officer attends a call. And I think there's a greater acceptance by far. People don't assume anymore that you can't do the job, which was certainly the case 30 some years ago. So I think we're doing much better. Uh, as a society, we've we've progressed a great deal. In many ways, you really are a trailblazer still. As I mentioned, you're Manitoba's first female commanding officer. Did you always aspire, like earlier in your career, did you aspire to achieve a senior rank? I'm, I'm curious to know what that journey was like without a lot of role models to look up to. Um, Early in my career, if you'd told me that one day I was going to be an assistant commissioner and the commanding officer of a division, I would have laughed. I said, I would have told you, now you're crazy. Um, not because I didn't think I could do it necessarily. I just didn't think about it. It was, it's, you, you join as a constable and you do your job. And if you get promoted, that's great. You go to corporal. And then if you do well there and you get promoted to sergeant and like an assistant commissioner is such a long way away from where you start that it never even occurred to me, I'll be quite honest, that I could get there. But I didn't really think I couldn't either. I, I don't know. It was just my assumption was that I would go through the non-commissioned ranks, the standard ones. And if I could retire as a sergeant or a staff sergeant, that'd be great. So to actually then seek a commission, which is a whole nother level, and then work my way up through the commission ranks, it's not something I ever would have imagined when I was first starting out. But I've always thought that I do my best. I give it my best. And, and if opportunities present themselves, I, I very rarely say no, because they usually bring with them some, some excitement and some new possibilities. And we have seen now, I mean, you've gone into your position. Just prior to that, the Prime Minister appointed Brenda Lucky as the RCMP's first female commissioner. And just so it's clear to some who might not know, that's essentially your boss. That's the the top. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, Commissioner Lucky officer. is the number one. Yes. Mm -hmm. What has been the impact? Do you think of of having women in more of these senior roles? I think it goes a long way to changing the dialogue and changing the style of policing um, in the RCMP. I mean, if you will look at traditionally in the RCMP or any police force. It was entirely a male-dominated profession. I mean, women were not in policing in any kind of significant way until 
want to think some of our other police agencies, 60s anyway, 70s, somewhere in there, um, in a significant way. And traditionally, there's a very macho, authoritarian, you know, power-based authority piece around policing in North America especially. And that was entirely because that was the style that was considered advantageous or what you wanted to see in a male police officer was a big, gruff, authoritarian, strong, could get into a fight, that kind of thing. But now, I think after a number of years of having women involved, we realized as society, and certainly in policing, that that different perspective and those different styles that women bring are very, very helpful, particularly in the difficult situations that we have to deal with every single day in policing. You got people who are at the worst, you know, having the worst day of their life, or they're having a mental health crisis, or there's been a terrible accident, and, you know, they've just had the worst news they could ever possibly get. They need somebody in those moments that's got some compassion and some empathy and ability to sort of sit back and listen. And that was what was missing, I think, in some, and not to say that men don't have that either. I, some of the, the best policemen I know are hugely compassionate and able to, to treat people in, in those difficult moments with the most impressive levels of compassion. But I think generally women bring that collaborative, consultative, um, far less authoritarian leadership style. And that's changed how we look at policing. We see that bringing both perspectives um, from somebody in the more traditional authoritarian style to somebody who's collaborative, consultative, more empathetic, whatever you want. And you, you get a blend of those two. You find that balance. And it helps you deal with the times when you have to go in there and actually fight, because we do. That's part of our job. We don't like getting into fights, but sometimes they happen. Or you go into a tactical situation where you're in harm's way and you've got to be very much strategic and tactical uh, at the same time in terms of how you approach these things. But then you have the other side where it's all about relationships. It's all about trust. It's all about being able to hold somebody when they need to be held and to help them find the resources they need when they're really in trouble. And it's that balance. I think women have brought a great balance to policing. I love that. I think it's such an important conversation to think about what women bring to all tables and and the different ways that they can lead. And I love what you said in terms of because I think to a certain extent, as you said, police officers, male or female, are absolutely capable of this empathy and this compassion. But I think bringing more women into the service, and, and you can agree or disagree, it invites men to also engage in that way and to demonstrate the value of leading in that way. Because of of course, men are capable of that of that that empathy and that compassion. They're just not always made to feel that it's valued or that they're they're welcomed to lead and engage in that way. I think in that regards, especially again in the past, it was almost poo pooed. It was considered a weakness if a man stood up and was able to be compassionate and and empathetic. Um, and again, I don't want to speak for all of my male colleagues, but not by any means. The vast majority, I think, are, are, are well within that balanced region now. But way back when, a guy who acted that way would have probably been criticized pretty vociferously from their colleagues. Now it's different. Uh, people understand the value of both sides. You, you touched on some of the challenges that the RCMP has faced recently. There has been a lot in the media about um, recent settlements um, some of our listeners might remember that three years ago, 
the RCMP settled a sexual harassment and discrimination lawsuit with female RCMP officers. And earlier this year, there was a second settlement for women who experienced sexual harassment while working for the service in non-policing roles. Jane, what has been the impact of these women speaking up, of them, you know, making this public, calling out kind of those pockets or, or the, the boys club culture that was allowed to persist? How have officers and civilian members responded to this? I think all in all, it's been a difficult time as an organization for uh, the organization to face the past and the wrongs done in the past. And there were wrongs. There's no doubt. I think women standing up, not just women, anybody standing up and pointing out where wrongs were done and trying to get some sort of accountability for those wrongs is uh, hugely valuable. And in terms of the class action lawsuit that went forward um, on behalf of certain individuals and women in the RCMP, uh, were there were there terrible things, um, terrible experiences that some of these women had to put up with and awful things done? Absolutely, there was. Some of those women deserve every penny of whatever settlements they're getting, and I wish them all well and all the power to them to try and get through those kind of traumatic incidents. I've been very fortunate in my career. As I said, I've had some – the vast majority of men I've worked with have been terrific, very professional um, and very respectful – few jerks along the way, oh yeah, but they exist across society. So in my career, I think I've been fortunate. And when I did have to stand up for myself, it didn't damage my career, if you know what I mean. Some yeah. women were not so fortunate. And when they tried to stand up for themselves, there was, there was repercussions. So I, I, you know, I don't want to speak for them by any stretch, but I think by people standing up, pointing out the wrongs, it helps us right them and right the ship. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, yeah, it's a very difficult history in the RCMP, but, I mean, it exists across society. Women were marginalized in a lot of different areas, um, treated badly in a lot of different areas. Um, and and you see that with the Me Too movement that came up in the last couple of years is people are, you know, women are being able to say, now stop and, and get some significant support behind uh, from society saying, no, this isn't okay anymore. This is not right. People should not be treated that way. So I think women standing up for themselves in whatever iteration that is, is really valuable. You can't put up with this stuff anymore. It's, you know, uh, it's way past the time that we can, we can tolerate that as a society. Mm -hmm. And do you see male officers standing up for their female counterparts as well now too? Is it just women standing up for themselves or is it seen as a shared responsibility? No, that's a very good question. You make a great point. It is a shared responsibility. And I think now not only do men recognize more that it's happened, whereas before it might have just seemed like a normal activity, but they're more than willing to stand up and say, hang on, that's wrong. And don't treat somebody like that, whether it's a male or female in my command or my, my office or whatever, they will not allow those kind of behaviors anymore. And you're seeing it more and more. I think it's great. Uh, Jane, some of our listeners might know, I'm not sure if you know, but I'm married to a member of the Winnipeg Police Service. So I have some experience, some understanding of the effects that the that the career has on family life. But I'd love for you to share your perspective and your experience with how choosing a life in law enforcement um, impacted your your family life. Uh, it can be very difficult because there are long hours, there's night shifts, there's knowingly putting yourself in harm's way, and your spouse has to deal with that. 
and you, I mean, obviously you know this, it's knowing when your, your loved one goes off to work, you're hoping they come back the next morning or whatever, safe and sound and everything's fine. So that on its own um, adds its stressors to any kind of relationship. Plus, when you're dealing with uh, traumatic incidents, uh, really difficult or uh, disturbing scenes, whatever, you don't always want to go home and talk about it. You, you don't want to burden your spouse, your loved one, in my case, my husband, with some of these things that I've seen because, you know, there is such a thing as vicarious trauma. I care about him and I don't want him to have to have what I have on my mind because I happen to see this on his. So you don't talk about it. But that gets perceived often the wrong way by the spouse as if you're, you know, and I, when I say the wrong way is it's misunderstood that you're, you're hiding something or you're not being open or you're not being communicative, and and it can cause some real serious um, stresses on a relationship, and it's it's definitely something that you need to talk about a great deal. And I've got an incredibly supportive husband; he's been fabulous, and we we we've weathered all of the situations tremendously. He's been great and nothing but supportive. So I'm really really fortunate on that. As a female, as a woman, I think it's it can be hard too because women are obviously we're the ones who if we're going to have kids we we're the ones having the kids usually the caregivers when they're young although now with different paternity paternity type leaves that's changing but it makes it hard as you know when you have young kids to put on the uniform and go out to work and and your kids meet you at the door and look at you and kind of go where are you going mom and you're going well I'm going to work and they're saying are you coming home in the morning and you're saying I hope so. But you can't say, I hope so. You just say yes, but you hope so. And that's kind of tough, too, because, again, traditionally, kids have never seen their mom being put in harm's way. We didn't see that, whether it's soldiers, policing, what have you. They've always been men before. So that puts other kind of stresses on a relationship. I I think it's all about how supportive your spouse is, um, how much talking you can do. And if you need to seek any kind of supports, you seek them. But... uh, you talk about what you can talk about and you make sure that, uh, you know, they know you love them every time you walk out the door and you know, that you, you know, it's, it's, it's all about that. It's all about saying the important things when you need to say them. And, and if you don't want to talk about something, you, 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 you explain why you make it understandable. So they don't think you're hiding or anything. There's so much that resonates there with what you said. Um, I will say that I think what has been really healthy is what you touched on earlier in terms of the culture shifting and welcoming men to be more honest about what they're experiencing, you know, for all members of the service to be to be more um, willing to be compassionate, willing to demonstrate that empathy and just to perhaps feel less like there needs to be that that macho-ness or I don't know how best to say it, but like, it's okay to be upset about what they see. It's okay to be impacted by it. I feel that my husband has received that, that support and, and that it's not that he's, you know, told he has to just kind of stuff it all down somewhere. And there's resources now, you know, to go have conversations. Um, uh, thank you so much for everything you've shared, Jane. Um, it's, it's so interesting hearing from you. Um, you've just, you know, you've, you've, taken on challenges and roles that are very different than many in society and certainly many women. We have some final questions that we like to ask all of our guests. Um, Before we get into those, is there anything that I might have missed? Anything that you, you know, you really want to share before we wrap up? 
Well, one thing I want to say is I've been in this role, the commanding officer of the RCMP in Manitoba, for about eight months now, I guess. And I want to stress about how impressed I am, not only with the province itself. Manitoba is a lovely place. I love the prairies, believe it or not. A lot of people don't understand that from back east. I come from Nova Scotia, which is beautiful. But the Mm -hmm. prairies are a special place as well, and I'm very happy to be here. But I'm impressed every single day with the men and women who make up the RCMP in this province. Um, They make my job easy, I tell you. They are a terrific bunch. Uh, All categories of employees, all genders, doesn't matter. They they do a great job and uh, appreciate very much being here. And and, uh, I'm really enjoying the gig so far. I think that uh, as a born and raised Manitoban, that we welcome East Coasters. We see them as equally hardy to us. <laughs> and so I think you've got what it takes to succeed in the in the rough, um, challenging prairies. We welcome you here. Um, okay, so our final questions. Jane, you work in law enforcement. You, you probably um, are typically about following the rules, but what's the best rule you ever broke? Ah. That's a good question. I would have to go back to my school days. I think I had policing in me from a very young age. As I said, that's what I wanted to do. And I was the kid who stuck up for the kids who were being bullied. And, you know, I would, you know, get in the face of the bully and I would get myself into trouble now and again, because I think the best rule I ever broke, I was actually probably around 13 years old when a younger kid at school was getting pretty mercilessly bullied. And I punched a kid right in the face. And which was, of course, completely against the rules, got suspended for a few days. But you want to know something? Nobody ever bothered that kid again. Nobody ever bothered me either. So that's probably I don't I don't certainly support violence in any way. But I tell you, in that instant, uh, that was probably the best rule I broke. I felt great. Well, we've had that conversation on the podcast before. When do you tell your children that it is okay to physically defend themselves and someone else? And I think it's really gray and it's something that each parent has to decide for themselves. But I completely respect what you're saying in terms of, you know, you needed to defend that that person. Um, Jane, what is your most important habit that was the hardest to create? Oh, Wow. Uh, like I could go in two directions on this one. I think from a professional point of view, we all spout work-life balance. We talk about how important it is work-life balance, but I've spent a whole career working ridiculous hours and being proud of it. You know, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. thinking that yeah. was the right thing to do. And it's only in the last couple of years, I guess, two, two to five years that I really figured out that not only is not really something, you know, you got to take care of yourself. Um, and you have to look after yourself in a professional way. And that work-life balance really means a lot. So in that regards, the hardest habit for me now is actually putting stuff aside and saying, is anybody going to die tonight if I don't finish this? No, nope, I'm going home and I'm going to have dinner with my husband and I'm going to call my friends and I'm going to take some me time, for lack of a better term. And that's something actually I'm pretty good at now. It took a while to get here. And I still, you know, if I have to pull an all-nighter because there's something going on, well, that's what I do. But I'm much better now at, at, at prioritizing my time and saying I'm important and I'm going to look after me. So that'd be one, I would say. That's probably the, the most one important thing. The other thing is I've got a very, very strict sleep habit now. I'm in bed at the same time every night and I make sure I get my time. So that was tough too. After working shift work for so long, I'm sure that's a 
a, a very um, welcome change for you too. Oh my gosh, yes. And I love that answer because I think that's another point to a culture shift, right? Is respecting people's boundaries in terms of going home when they can and, and embracing a bit of balance. Um, that's great. And then our final question is just, can you share a book that made you wiser? Yeah, actually, the one that comes to mind for me, it's a book that's dear to my heart. And as soon as I, as I, I heard the question, this is the book that comes to mind. It's called Touching the Void by a man named Joe Simpson. It was written in 1988, and it's a true story. Uh, Joe was a climber, a very active mountain climber. He and his partner, a guy named Simon Yates, were climbing a mountain in South America, roped together and got into trouble, and Joe ended up hanging over a precipice. I don't know the whole story there, but Simon had to make a choice to be pulled over the edge of this mountain, or does he cut the rope? He cut the rope, and Joe fell into a crevasse, and Simon made the assumption that he was dead, and it was all terrible. But I'll tell you what, he wasn't dead. And severely injured, this man got himself out of that crevasse, and over the course of days, he crawled back to camp. He got himself home. And it's wow. an incredible book in the way it's written. Um, Joe Simpson adds that spiritual touch. I mean, he was probably hallucinating terribly. Let's, let's be honest when you think about the situation. But the way he writes it is touching and it's spiritual. And it, it really was inspiring to me. I read it a very long time ago. I'm a big mountain climbing fan. I'm not a climber myself, but boy, oh boy, if I was back to being 18 again, I'd be there. But uh, anyway, it's inspiring and it, it was a whole whole book about not giving up on yourself as in no matter how bad you're hurt or what's going on you just keep moving forward but also about not giving up on others don't make an assumption you know what I mean like so mm -hmm. he didn't give up on himself the way his friend kind of gave up on him does that make sense and his yeah. friend was redeemed because he wasn't going to be able to live with the fact that he cut that rope until Joe survived it's a hell of a book excuse my language it was a heck of a book <laughs> no that sounds amazing um, yeah. Thank you. Thanks again. I really appreciate your time. I know you've got a lot. Uh, you're leading a very large team um, and overseeing really important work. So thank you for the work that you do every day and throughout your career. And thank you for taking the time to speak with, with me and with our audience today. Well, it's my pleasure. It's been fun. And I appreciate, too, your podcast. I've been listening to it since I heard about it. Oh, thank you. It, so good job. <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Women Don't Do That. We hope you're inspired to do whatever it is you think you can't do. Find all our podcasts and blog content at womendontdothat.com and stay connected with us on Instagram and Twitter. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next time.